All right, 12.30, let us get started. Welcome everybody, especially if this is your first time, welcome. Uh, we record every week on audio and video, so if you want to catch up to where we are in numbers, then you can do that by going to uh, YouTube, SoundCloud, or iTunes and searching for Disciple Dojo, and that'll give you the link to our channel. I want to mention a couple of things real quick that have nothing to do with uh, my ministry, but that may be of help to you. There's two newer study Bibles that have come out. Um, when I teach the course Bible for the rest of us, those of you that have taken it, you know, there's a part where I talk about study Bibles and the purpose of them. So there's Bibles like this. So this is a text only Bible, right? It's just the text and different translations. And then there are study Bibles. And study Bibles have not just the text, but then they have supplemental material, cross-references, study notes. This sounds basic to a lot of people, but you'd be surprised at how many people don't know this. And there are a ton of study Bibles out there, and they're pretty expensive at times. I mean, they can be up to 50, 60, 80 bucks if you get like nice leather bindings and all that stuff. But uh, there's a lot of study Bibles that really aren't worth the money. Um, not that they're evil or heretical, but you're just paying a lot of money for a lot of fluff or maybe one person's opinion or one person's view on stuff. So I always tell people when I teach on the Bible, a good study Bible is essential because you, none of us know everything about all the books of the Bible. And so it helps to have the work of multiple scholars, preferably from multiple traditions within Christianity, coming together and, and giving you things that you wouldn't know. So whenever I see a study Bible with somebody's name on it, I always tell people, just, you're better off with, an, there's, there's better stuff out there. You know, you don't need to know so-and-so, pastor so-and-so, or bishop so-and-so, or, you know, even if it's a person in church history, you don't need to know what they think about the Bible, really, rather what the text itself is teaching. So a good rule of thumb for study Bibles is you want to get one, and you want to read through it as you read your scripture. You know, it doesn't have to be your primary Bible. I mean, these are kind of big to carry around, but you can have them as kind of like what we do at this Bible study to give you the background, to give you things that you wouldn't normally know. So that's different than a devotional Bible, even. A devotional Bible is not a study Bible. A devotional Bible just gives you little questions or thoughts for the day or things like that to reflect on. And again, nothing wrong with it. I'm not disparaging those, but it's not study. And there are really good study Bibles out there that you should be aware of. And there's two newer ones that have uh, come out somewhat recently. Uh, one is, is the CSB study Bible. This is actually, the, this is for you Baptists out there. Uh, I say that because it's the, the CSB, used to be called the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation. And it was commissioned and it's owned by the Southern Baptist Convention. That's why you see these in Lifeway stores, which is also owned by the Southern Baptist Convention. But even a Methodist like myself, can recognize that the scholars that actually contributed to this are phenomenal. And a number of them were actually professors of mine uh, or people whose work I read regularly. So th this is really good. I tease my Baptist friends, you know, like, you guys got this one right. Um, the, these are, this is a really good resource. It's a really good study Bible if you like the Holman Christian Standard Translation, which is a good translation as well. This one came out recently. It used to be the Holman Christian Standard Study Bible. But, but anyway, this is a good one worth checking out, especially for the contributors. And then a newer one that came out that's won the Christianity of 
Christianity Today's uh, Study Bible or Book of the Year Award, this one just came out. It's called the Cultural Background Study Bible. And it's edited by, I think, Craig Keener, who's a, uh, one of the editors at least, and a number of contributors. But it's NIV is the translation they use. But it's fantastic in terms of background, giving you the stuff that, like stuff we mention here, how this fits in its ancient Near East text setting, or in the New Testament, it's Greco-Roman setting. So this is a really good study Bible as well. And some of you have asked, just so you, the, the Bible that I use, teach from each week is the archaeology study Bible. Uh, my seminary, Gordon-Conwell, put it together with Zondervan. Uh, it's based on the NIV. They also do one based on the King James. But the study notes are all about kind of like the archaeology, the background, the culture. So there are good, good, good options out there. If you ever have questions about it, you can, um, you can download the Bible for the Rest of Us workbook from my website for free. And the appendix has a whole list of recommended study Bibles and then a list of some that you'd be better to skip over. Uh, just finance-wise, and then some that are actually kind of heretical with their study notes, because there are those out there, um, and it's worth knowing, you know, just because somebody publishes a Bible doesn't mean they believe the Bible. You know, Bible publishing is a big business, so just be aware of that. But uh, that's part of the ministry. That's part of this ministry of Disciple Dojo is equipping and training and teaching, and part of that is getting resources into the hands of people. So if you want to study the Bible, unless you are reading from the original languages and have a familiar understanding of the world in which it was written, you really do need a study Bible because they're the, they're the accumulation, they're the fruits of the labor of thousands and thousands of scholars who have, have been led by the Spirit in their ministries to put together these resources to give you. So, um, so be aware of that, and I encourage you, if you have questions about a particular study Bible or you're looking for one, uh, there are many other good ones and some for people who are farther along in their walk, some for people who are brand new to the Bible, everything in between. So there's a whole range. That being said, let's actually do some Bible study. No, what's that? Uh, this one's the Archaeology Study Bible. The Archaeology Study Bible by Zondervan. The, yeah, NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, uh, also by Zondervan. And then the other one is the Christian Standard Study Bible by Holman, who's the publisher. Oh, yeah, Holman's a great translation. Yeah, it's, I mean, again, and we, I take for granted because I've taught on this so much, but not here, so I need to keep that in mind, is there's no right translation. Uh, English changes every generation. That's why there are new translations that come out. Not because the ones before didn't get it right. They got it right, for the most part, for the time that they were translated, or for the language into which they were translated, but English changes. I mean, the English we speak and the English that was spoken 100 years ago is different. So that's why it's important to kind of keep in mind, you know, there's never going to be a frozen, perfect text, no matter what the KJV-only people tell you. The King James Bible is not the best translation out there for modern English speakers. It's just not. Um, and I will happily debate, and I'll even wrestle with anybody that wants to uh, <laughs> challenge that point. But regardless, that means it's wrong. If you're reading King James, you're okay. You're not going to hell. Uh, <clears throat> but there's a few things that you may miss because you don't speak Elizabethan English. So let's get back to Exodus. I mean, no, let's not get back. Let's get Numbers. Yeah, we're not in Exodus. However, we're in Numbers, and we're on the last chapter of the Exodus generation. Yeah, tied it together. That's called a save. 
Um, so Exodus 19, now, now again, keep it in mind, Exodus 16, 17, 18, 19, this is all one story, one event, this cycle, this series of rebellions that have taken place, showing the downward spiral of this generation. The generation that came out of the Exodus, the generation that came through the waters of baptism at the parting, the Red Sea, that's how the New Testament refers to it, and were delivered by God's grace. They did not earn it. They did not work to be delivered by Pharaoh. God and God alone did it. But in order to enjoy and to continue in that salvation, they had to walk in obedience. And for the most part, with the exception of a handful, this generation has not. And they've continued to rebel, continue to reject God. And so God, there's a series of judgments that happened over the last three or four chapters that have basically left the entire camp riddled with corpses. I mean, there's no nice way to put it. People died in this rebellion against God. This was treason of the highest order against Moses, against Aaron, and the entire priesthood and, and all of it. So if you've missed it, check the video of the last few sessions. But the question that remains that you may not even think to ask, but that would be proper to ask is so death is the ultimate enemy of God. It's the everything, remember from Leviticus, everything that symbolizes death is what God prohibits Israel and says this makes you unclean. So death is what renders people unclean and those things which call to mind or symbolize or have connotations of death make people unclean. Well, there's a bunch of dead people in the camp of God right now. A lot of dead people. 14 Eleph 700 dead people. Now, whether that's 14,000 or 14 groups and 700, doesn't matter. There's a lot of dead people. So that means that all of Israel is unclean at this point. I mean, there are death in their midst. And this generation is going to die in the wilderness. God's already said it. Your corpse will litter the wilderness. Your children will enter the land. So what do they, how do they keep from being permanently unclean as this generation dies off? That's what chapter 19 answers. Some people read it and they go, oh, this is weird. It, it jumps back to putting some laws in place. Well, no. Again, why did the author put this here? Why is this in this spot? Because this is the ritual that deals with the impurity that comes from death, from contact with death. And so God gives uh, this command, chapter 19, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is a requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring to you a red heifer, a red cow, not a bull, a female, without defect or blemish. Literally in Hebrew it says a, a perfect red cow or a whole red cow. In other words, a cow that's entirely red. All right, much like myself. Only red hair on this thing. Okay, that's what it's asking for, a ginger cow. Without blemish, defect or blemish, and that has never been under a yoke. In other words, it's never been yoked for any purpose. It hasn't, it's, it's fresh, it's young, it's new. It hasn't pulled a plow or been used for anything else. Verse 3, give it to Eliezer the priest. It's to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Then Eliezer the priest is to take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times towards the front of the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. While he watches, the heifer is to be burned. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, and the contents of its entrails. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet dye. Uh, NIV says scarlet wool, but the word is literally scarlet worm. And that's because that dye came from the, this type of worm. Uh, it's, it's not the word wool, although it could be used in some wool things. But these red things, so this, this plant, this hyssop, cedar wood, scarlet wool, 
throw them into the burning or onto the burning cow. After that, the priest must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He may then come into the camp, but he will be ceremonially unclean until evening. The man who burns it must also wash his clothes and bathe with water. He too will be unclean till evening. So the first thing God says to do is you're going to take this whole perfect red cow and you're going sac- to kill it, but not in the middle of the, the tabernacle. Like you're going to actually take it outside the camp, out to the place of impurity. And Aaron doesn't do this. Eliezer does. The high priest can't leave. The high priest that's anointed, when he's anointed, can't leave the tabernacle because then he becomes unclean and the whole thing has to be repeated. So the other priest takes him out, burns up everything, makes it an entirely burnt offering, but not at the altar. So then, onto this burning, cooking animal. And everything, you know, in other passages it talks about take the entrails, take the fat, do this with that, and this with that, sprinkle the blood here. This is all, just put it all together. Burn it all, entirely up to the Lord. Then throw these three red things on it. Um, the, the, the hyssop and the cedar and the scarlet dye. <clears throat> People wondered what does that symbolize. Some say well, red symbolizes blood, which is, symbolizes the cleansing. And some say no, red symbolizes sin because Isaiah says, though your sins be like scarlet, I'll make them white as wool. Um, yeah, could be both. Probably has something to do with both. But the text doesn't say. It just assumes the ritual rather than explaining the underlying logic of it. Then it says, um, a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes from the heifer and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. They shall be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It's for purification from sin. The man who gathers up the ashes of the heifer must also wash his clothes. He too will be unclean till evening. This will be a lasting ordinance for both the Israelites and the strangers or the immigrants living among them. So now the ashes, so once everything's burned up, then the ashes are to be gathered up. And those are going to be used for something. So the purpose of this ritual is to get these ashes. And there will be a lot of them. Because, I mean, if you've ever burned a a cow, (laughs) cows are not small animals. So there's going to be a lot of ashes. But these ashes are going to be used for something. Now, the word for ashes here is not the normal word ashes. It's actually the word dust. Every time you see ashes in this text, it's the word afar. And it's the word dust, literally the same thing that God created man from the dust of the earth or to dust you from dust you form to dust you will return. That's the word that's used here, dust. So every time you read ashes, in your mind at least, know that it's saying dust. The dust will be gathered and used. So then verse 11, whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third and seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone and fails to purify himself defiles the Lord's tabernacle. That person must be cut off from Israel because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. His uncleanness remains on him. So this is what this is for. This water of cleansing that's made from the ashes of this cow is going to be for the cleansing of those who are defiled by coming in contact with death and then bringing that into the camp. Death 
in this view, in the Old Testament mindset, and whether this was purely an object lesson or whether there is something metaphysically going on, you're free to debate. But the mindset of the ancient Hebrew was death is radioactive. It's a contaminant. It actually, almost like uh, one of the older Jewish scholars referred to it as like this miasma that permeates the air around it. And that it can actually infect, in a theological sense at least, everything that's within its contact. Death is seen as this active force, not just this passive thing that happens to people. It's seen as, a, as an enemy, as something that encroaches, that when it's first mentioned, back, way back in Genesis, God tells Cain, you know, sin is crouching at your door, its desire is for you. So this concept of sin and death being linked to the fall, man returning to dust, all of these images are swirling around, and you get the notion that it's not just, well, this person died, let's have a funeral. It's this person died, and that's in direct contradiction and violation of everything God intended for humanity. So every death is a reminder of the fallenness of this creation. Every person's death, when I preach a funeral, which I hate, I hate preaching funerals. I'd rather do weddings. Some preachers are opposite. My dad, he'd rather do a funeral than a wedding. I hate doing funerals. But when I do a funeral, I always make sure to tell the family and the people grieving, look, this casket or this urn, or if we're at a graveside, this grave is an ongoing reminder that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's an ongoing message that God is screaming out, this is not right. So your grief, your anger, your hatred, your frustration, your confusion, all of that is exactly what you should feel at death because it's a total affront to the creation that God made. It's, it's not just a part of life that we should ever become okay with. It is always an enemy. Death is never pictured as anything but an enemy in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And New Testament specifically says the final enemy to be defeated is death. And then Jesus will be said to have put everything under his feet. You read it in 1 Corinthians, you read it in Revelation 20. Death is the enemy. So don't ever get lulled into the sense of death is just a transition from one stage of life to the next. No. It, we go through it and God does bring us to the next point, but not because of death, but rather in spite of death. Death is always an affront to God's creation. So, when you come in contact with death in Israel, when you're living amongst the holy God, and you come in contact with death, then that, that renders you unable to just walk back into the presence of God. Because there's this uncleanness, is how the Bible refers to it. This impurity going on. What? No, it, you can celebrate the person's life, but you don't celebrate death. Yeah, there's always celebrate their life. Celebrate the life and the memory and laugh and all of that, but not at the expense of mourning the actual death. It's this weird balance you got to walk between two, and you know, what did Jesus do when he went to Lazarus' tomb? Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he wept because he, he came face to face with the very enemy that he had been sent to this earth to defeat. He came face to face with it, and he wept. So Jesus can weep. Oh yeah, because... Death is when, when somebody goes away and dies, 
You know, where are they? Well, they're resting with the Lord. But death, death, you find a passage in the Bible where death is ever spoken of as anything other than an enemy. And why? Finish the verse. <laughs> you always have to be able to do that. That entire passage from Revelation is talking about martyrdom. And because they were willing to give their life. So the blood that was spilled is precious to the Lord. But the death that was died was at the hands of the enemy. It's always an enemy. It's never, it's never something to be happy about. Even, even though there's joy within it. Again, Jesus was going to raise Lazarus. He knew in, in 10 minutes I'm going to be hugging Lazarus. But yet there's still something completely undoing of creation in human death. It'll always be. So again, hold the balance. Does it mean you despair? No. New Testament says we don't grieve like those who have no hope. But we do grieve, just not like those who have no hope. And it is the last yeah. enemy that will The last enemy that will be defeated is death. Yeah, flat out. So anyway, getting back to this. This is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days. And every open container without a lid fastened on it will be unclean. There's this concept of death actually permeating the atmosphere, so to speak. Um, everything around it. In other words, it was, it was communicating to the people, this is a serious thing. You can't just go on like nothing happened when a death occurs. <clears throat> and then, so that's when somebody dies inside. Then verse 16, anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword someone who has died a natural death, anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. For the unclean person, put some, again, dust or ashes from the burn purification offering into a jar and pour some fresh water over them. That word fresh is the word living. Pour some living water over them. Chaim in Hebrew. So, ashes, living water combination of ashes of dust and living water are involved in this ritual. Then a man who is ceremonial clean is to take some hyssop, and it's like a spongy, springy, kind of just think nature's paintbrush, and dip it in the water and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who were there. In other words, sprinkle everything. This is what purifies it, this sprinkling. He must also sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or someone who has been killed uh, or someone who has died a natural death. The man who is clean is to sprinkle the unclean person on the third and seventh days. And on the seventh days to purify him. The person being cleansed must wash his clothes, bathe with water, and that evening he will be clean. But if a person who is unclean does not purify himself, he must be cut off from the community because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on him and he is unclean. This is a lasting ordinance for them. The man who sprinkles the water of cleansing must also wash his clothes, and anyone who touches the water of cleansing will be unclean until evening. Anything that an unclean person touches becomes unclean. Anyone who touches it becomes unclean until evening. So this whole concept of this, this water of purification, in some way... If you touch it, it makes you unclean. This is the paradox of this chapter. Touching this makes you unclean. Even the person doing the sprinkling is unclean until evening. There's an element of uncleanness because this, this stuff, this, this sprinkling of water mixed with dust of the cow 
It was made, it was created outside in the unclean place. It's, it carries with it a concept of uncleanness, but paradoxically, it is what cleans the person. It takes this death of this cow outside the city to make clean the people who have been defiled by death. That's the overall imagery going on. Now, in, at the time, what would this have meant? Don't know. There could have been a lot of connotations to it. But looking back through the events of Scripture for New Testament believers, it had incredible significance. The death of one outside the city where the unclean are somehow makes clean those who have been tainted by death. Right? He himself became sin to bring to God us. Right? He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. This has huge Christological echoes that are going on here. In fact, the New Testament... So, before that, we've got five minutes and we'll show you how this is used. In Ezekiel 36, after Israel has been exiled, God gives a message to Ezekiel, who's a priest who had been carried away from Jerusalem as the temple was about to be destroyed, and he was taken to exile in Babylon. He got messages throughout the whole book, Israel is dead. God has forsaken his temple, the priesthood, the temple, all of it. He's done with it. Everything seems like utter despair. And then God gives a message to Ezekiel in the midst of all that, in the midst of that death on a national scale, and he's in exile, which is, might as well be dead. God says to Ezekiel, chapter 36, therefore, or chapter 36, verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I'll show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. This is the promise that God gave to Israel as they longed for restoration. They were a dead people in exile. And God uses the imagery of the red heifer and the sprinkling of the water of purification to say, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to re remove your uncleanness. So it's that imagery that He uses and He connects it to this thing He's going to do where somehow He's going to give them a new heart. And somehow He's going to put His Spirit in them. Which is just weird in the Old Testament. Because the Spirit didn't go in you, it came upon you for a certain time, for a certain purpose, and then you went back to normal life. But God says, no, I'm going to actually put it in you, and I'm going to transform your heart. His older colleague Jeremiah had said the human heart is wicked above all things. Uh, and then later God told Jeremiah in a parallel passage to this, I'm going to give you a new heart. So a heart transplant has always been on the menu for God's people. But God links it to that sprinkling image and is not talking about Methodist baptism, although I was sprinkled as a baby, but it's talking about the sprinkling of the red heifer. That's the sprinkling image that's used. 
So even in the Old Testament, it was using this idea to signify the renewal and the restoration and the cleansing that would happen in this long-awaited new covenant that the people back then were still waiting for. So then fast forward, New Testament after Jesus, go to the book of Hebrews. This is the one we'll end with. Chapter 9, the author of Hebrews who's writing to, anybody want to guess? The Hebrews. He's writing to his people, to the people steeped in Torah. He writes to them and the whole first 10 chapters of the book are about how Jesus is the embodiment of all the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's the fulfillment. He's the culmination. And so, verse chapter 9, it says, yeah, verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is, not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation. In other words, heaven. The tabernacle is always symbolic of the realm of God. Mount Sinai, where God dwells. Verse 12, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So the, message, the, the red heifer concept was used to proclaim in the Old Testament and in the New Testament this promised new covenant. So when you look at this, this weird ritual that's going on, for us, it's weird. For Israel at the time, it wasn't that normal. I mean, it was still kind of weird even for them. It had some similarities to some Babylonian and other rituals that they would do to try to atone or to try to cleanse or purify, but not a lot. It was its kind of its own thing. But looking back through the lens of the entire span of Scripture and Jesus as the fulfillment, what we see is that this was a prefiguring. This was a shadow. This was a, a preview of coming attractions. And this was a temporary thing. It was, a, it was meant, it says this will be a statute forever. Uh, and it meant that word forever, olam. People get hung up on it because they're like, well, that means we should still do it. Olam doesn't mean forever, eternity. It means for as long as you can see. It comes from a root word which means hidden. And it means like out of, as far as you can see, this is going to be what you do. But later in Israel's own scripture, it would say, you've broken this. So there's a new thing that I'm going to do. And it's going to take the place of this. It's actually going to fulfill this. So you're not going to do this ritual, but by this new thing, the effects of this ritual are going to be done in your life in a way that's even greater. So it's not like you're turning from one thing to another thing. It's like this one thing is going to be subsumed and captured into this other thing. And that's what we're part of. That's what the new covenant is. So there's so many layers to what how we read all of this and what we do with it. But the importance for this lesson, because this is it. The la this is it. The next, very next verse, come next week, <clears throat> we'll see it. Chapter 20, verse 1. In the first month, the whole community of Israelite arrived at the desert of Sin. They stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. That verse is 38 years after the verse right before it. 
the verse we just read is the last verse of the Exodus generation. Between that line and the next line, 38 years pass. We talk about God, 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 well, those stories of Israel wandering the wilderness. There are no stories of Israel wandering in the wilderness. That is entirely omitted. The stories that come now are the new generation and their new exodus march towards the promised land. So there's going to be recapitulation of their ancestors of what the previous generation did, but that, there's no, that's it. Their ancestors, that generation died without a trace, without memorials. Nobody remembers their names except anybody, un, except the ones that were unfaithful and tried to rebel. And that's part of the curse that God said was going to happen to them for their rebellion. So that's it. We're done with this generation. The Exodus generation, dead. God remains among his people even as this older generation dies out and as death continues to be the specter that haunts them as they move forward. But we're out of time. So come next week, we're going to see the new generation and it's going to be oddly familiar to what has happened before. You guys have a great week.